as half of our congregation files out, um, you can turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25, that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. Um, if you don't have a Bible or you don't have a Bible on you, um, feel free to grab one out, uh, or sorry, don't grab one of the pew in front of you is what I'm supposed to say. Um, the ones in the pew in front of you are not ours. Um, we use a different translation than that. Um, but uh, put up your hand and one of our ushers will get you a copy of God's Word. Um, we want you to have it. we got a couple up here and a couple over here. Um, we want to work through God's Word together. Uh, God's Word is our authority. God's Word is our, uh, our truth. And uh, so I don't come with any wisdom. I don't come with any, uh, anything amazing of myself. Um, we want to come together to look at, at God's Word. Um, if you don't have a Bible at home or one that you can read easily, keep this one. It's our gift to you. Um, glad for you to have it. We are always happy to have to refill our stock of Bibles. That's a good day for us. Um, as we look at Genesis 25, um, we come now to the, the death of Abraham. A timely passage, I think, in some ways. Um, not that it wouldn't be appropriate on any given Sunday, but, but this week in particular, um, we've had uh, a number from our church attending funerals this last week, even yesterday, and others away even now attending a funeral over the weekend. Um, even in a, a church young as ours, um, we still feel the sting of death. We, we see it around us, whether it's the loss of a grandfather in his old age um, or a beloved sister-in-law who seems to have been taken far too soon. The reality, the pain of death is all around us. We come to the death of Abraham. We look at his burial and his legacy this morning. Um, we feel the pain of death. We feel the, the sting of death, the tragedy of it. But as we look at Abraham's death, the, the banner that hangs over it is not one of loss and pain and sorrow, but of God's faithfulness. The Lord's ultimate blessing being preserved and carried out. It, it's God's faithfulness reigning over death. And so we see in these verses as we go through, just to tell you where we're headed, we see God's faithfulness to Abraham, and we see God's faithfulness through Abraham, and then we see God's faithfulness beyond Abraham. Uh, and so let's, uh, let's just read this passage together, and then we'll see um, what the Lord has for us. We'll walk through it. So Genesis 25, starting in verse 1, we'll go to verse 18. It says, Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Lethashim, and Leomim. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanok, Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But the sons of his concubines, Abraham, gave gifts, and while they were still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward into the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, a hundred and seventy-five years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the sons of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre. 
the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. And after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled at Behir Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, servants, uh, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in order of their birth, Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Keter, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Naphish, and Kadima. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, a hundred and thirty-seven years. He breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against his kinsmen. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you that even in these transitionary passages, you have uh, truth for us, hope, encouragement, strength for us, even this morning. God, would you soften our hard hearts? Would you open our dull ears that we may hear your truth? God, I pray for those who come this morning with a, a hard and stubborn heart, God, that you would graciously crush it, bring them to humility and repentance before you. God, I pray for those who come with broken hearts, God, that you would comfort them, that you would be gracious to them, that you would strengthen them and encourage them. But Father, um, if there's anything I have to say that is not true to your word, when those, those words just fall to the ground and be left behind and forgotten, but God, may your word go forth, may your truth um, be proclaimed, and, uh, and, and may our hearts be founded upon it this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, these verses, as I mentioned, uh, are kind of the, the final piece of this transitionary section in the book of Genesis. Um, they kind of serve to, to wrap up the life story of Abraham and, and then to move the story forward from Abraham to Isaac. There are three, three main sections, and you're just kind of looking at the verses in front of us, verses 1 to 18. First, there's this list of the descendants of Abraham by his other wife, Keturah. So verses 1 to 6, we see the, the record of that. And then verses 7 to 11, probably a separate paragraph in your Bible, um, we, we see the death of Abraham and his sons burying him. And then the final section, verses 12 to 18, um, we see the descendants of Ishmael and the death of Ishmael. What really comes to the surface as we just look through these last kind of Verses wrapping up the life of Abraham, moving the story forward. What we really see is the faithfulness of God. It's God perfectly keeping the promises that he has made as Abraham's life comes to an end. These three points that I want to look at, they don't, they don't really play out systematically through the passage as we often do. They're kind of three themes that permeate the whole thing. So we're going to jump around through these verses a little bit. Firstly, we see God's faithfulness to Abraham. Moses is writing this and he's summarizing the end of Abraham's life. He's just kind of wrapping up all the little details for us. And you can't help but see God's faithfulness to Abraham just written um, over top of it all. 
firstly, we see it in these, these two genealogies at the start and finish, these lists of names. Verse 1 tells us Abraham um, either took or had taken uh, another wife. Um, I say it that way because the, the timing is not clear. The, the text gives us no idea of when this happened. The book of Genesis, if you're reading it carefully, you'll see it's not always strictly chronological in order. That, that's not Moses' intent as he's writing. He's not working for a strict chronological account. And, and you see that really clearly, just obviously, um, verse 26 of this chapter. We'll get to that next week. Um, Isaac is 60 years old when Jacob and Esau, his two sons, are born. We also know that Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born, and he lived to 175. And so Jacob and Esau are actually born 15 years before the death of Abraham, and yet here um, Moses is kind of wrapping up the life of Abraham before moving on to the life of Isaac and the birth of Jacob and Esau. And so you see how it makes sense. Uh, it just doesn't play out strictly chronologically. That may well be the case with Keturah, this other wife uh, of Abraham's. Maybe it happened some time ago. It just wasn't crucial to the plot, and so it wasn't included at that time, but it's here just kind of wrapping up the story. It's also entirely possible that Abraham was married again after Sarah passed away, and, uh, and this is a remarkable virility in his old age, if that is the case. Um, but that's not beyond possibility either. Um, it's helpful to note as well, um, she's called a wife here, but down in verse 6, she's referred to as a, a concubine. Sarah is Abraham's only true wife, proper wife. By um, Sarah's slave girl, Ishmael, uh, slave girl uh, Hagar, they had Ishmael, um, but that wasn't a proper marriage. That wasn't the way it was supposed to be. She was a slave turned into a wife. That's a concubine. Keturah, as well, seems to be uh, a slave wife, a concubine. And, and again, just to be clear here, the Bible's not telling us this is good or okay. This is not a roadmap for us to follow. This is just what happened. Abraham um, is a hero of the faith. God used him in amazing ways. God blessed him richly, but he was a sinful man. He was a man of his day, and he made decisions um, in that day that that didn't honor the Lord. Um, that's part of the amazing thing about the Bible. Um, we have some really broken heroes, and Christ is the ultimate hero. God is the ultimate hero. God blessed Abraham. And one of the ways we see that blessing is God just providing exactly what he had promised. So Genesis 17 the Lord changed Abraham's name from Abram to Abraham and told him that he would be the father of many nations, of a multitude of nations. Now, here at the end of this life, we get the, this list of names. Keturah had um, six sons to Abraham. Listed there also are seven grandsons and three great-grandsons. Some of these we know from biblical history. As we continue to read the Bible, you're going to see Midian, one of those sons becomes a nation that's in constant conflict with Israel. Sheba will show up again. The, the queen of Sheba is, is wealthy and impressive, and she comes to visit Solomon. Others show up uh, through various ancient writings. It's very interesting reading through the commentators as they pull out different places in historical documents where these names come up as nations. These sons and grandsons grow into nations. 
Likewise, down in verses 12 to 18, the 12 sons of Ishmael. God is showing his faithfulness. Later in Genesis 17, God um, changes Abram's name to Abraham and talks about the the blessing. And then um, Genesis 17, in obedience to God, he's told to send Ishmael away. He's not the promised son. He's not the one um, that God had promised whom God's blessing would come. And so he's to send him off. And in the midst of that, God comforts Abraham, sending off his beloved son by telling him um, that, that Ishmael will be the father of 12 princes and become a great nation. And now here at the end of Abraham's life, we read their 12 names. We're told these were 12 princes according to their tribes. At the end of Abraham's life, God was faithful. God had fulfilled everything he had promised to do to Abraham. We also see God's faithfulness to Abraham in verses 7 to 8. Abraham lived to be 175 years old. He breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man full of years. What a beautiful statement. We go back a little further, Genesis 15, 15. God had said this to Abraham, As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried in a good old age. Sound familiar? Two things here. Firstly, Abraham lived a long life. He was blessed by God. Not only the, this miraculous age of 175 years, um, but that phrase, full of years. Those years were full. God's blessing upon them. Man, we so easily grumble about getting old. Today is my 41st birthday, so I'm no longer 40. Got that over with. Um, But things start to hurt, and we start to grumble and and complain. Um, But this is a beautiful thing. Growing old in the Bible is a a blessing. Gray hairs are a sign of of wisdom and, and the Lord's kindness. Seeing Kids and grandkids growing up in the Lord. We should, we should embrace that. We should rejoice in that. This longevity is a, is a gift from the Lord. But at the same time in there, what we see is whether life is long or short, the days of our lives are in the Lord's hands. He's over it completely. Psalm 139 says, To the Lord, your eyes saw my unformed substance. He's speaking about in his mother's womb. And then he goes on to say, In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So before you were even born, in your mother's womb, the Lord had marked out every one of your days, written them in his book, before one of them even came to be. Our our lives are in his hands. Every day that you enjoy, every breath that you take, it's a gift from him. Go ahead, breathe in again. Praise the Lord. What a gift. And the day that you breathe your last is equally marked out by God. Your last breath was ordained by him before you drew your first. And so the death is is always tragic. And to lose someone at a young age is increasingly tragic. And we're right to grieve that. But in a very real sense, no one actually dies before their time. Nobody dies too soon. 
Just as Jesus said, not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the knowledge of his Father. He cares. Not a single person who dies, dies outside of God's perfect, complete plan for their life. Nobody dies outside of God's care. It's not always easy to understand. We wrestle with that. But that's the truth of Scripture. Beautiful paragraph written by uh, Blaise Pascal, uh, a Christian mathematician, philosopher from the the 1700s. He wrote this at the, the death of his father, and I think it's so poignant. He says, We who are bereaved by the death of our father, we will find no solid relief unless we acknowledge that what has occurred is not, or sorry, is the result not of chance, nor of some fatal necessity of nature, nor of the interplay of elements or parts of the human condition. It is rather an event indispensable, inevitable, just, holy, and useful for the well-being of the church and the exaltation of the name of the glory of God. It is an intervention of providence decreed from all eternity to take place in the fullness of time and in such a manner. What is left for us is to unite our will to that of God himself, to will in him, to will with him, and to will for him the thing that he has eternally willed in us and for us. There's no such thing as chance. There's no such thing as unforeseen events random tragedy, but rather the perfect will of God in his good and loving care. Again, that's not always easy to understand or to accept, but as Pascal said, we will find no solid relief from grief until we find it there. God is sovereign over life and death. He he holds that in his good hands. And that that brings us to the second piece then of verse 8. God's blessing to Abraham, we, we see that he, he died at a good old age, exactly in God's timing, and then it says he was gathered to his people. That's significant. It said in chapter 15, he went to his fathers in peace. Now you have to understand what we call progressive revelation, right? Abraham um, was not reading the book of Matthew and the book of Revelation. Abraham doesn't have a, a fully orbed, formed out theology. He has very little. God has only revealed so much at this point in time. But what he knows from God's promise is this life is not the end. This isn't it. He knows that when he dies, he will not just cease to exist, but that he would be gathered to his fathers in peace. He would be brought into, into a place where he belongs. It's a beautiful hope. Now, Ishmael is also said in verse 17 to be gathered to his people. Um, If we look at the distance between them, um, the differences between them, there's no need to assume those are the same people. At his death, Abraham is brought by the Lord to a place of peace and rest. A place that would later be called Abraham's side. See, when we we tend to get lazy when we talk about death of a believer. We, when a believer dies, we tend to say, well, they've, they've died and gone to heaven, and, and that's not necessarily wrong. It's just not very precise. 
our final home, our eternal resting place. We often use the word heaven, but I think it misleads us because it's not a place of floaty clouds and, and harps. Revelation 21 tells us of the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. It's this world recreated new. Without sin, without the curse of death, without toil in our work, but, but it's a world with, with mountains and rivers and, and rocks and, and dirt. That, that's where we spend eternity. It's in this world recreated perfect again. But that place doesn't exist yet. Revelation 21 tells of it being made by God after the final judgment, after the resurrection. That's where we go in our our glorified bodies. Our bodies are resurrected, reconstituted, and we go there as physical beings to a physical eternity. So what about right now? Where do believers go today when they die? Luke 16, Jesus tells a very interesting story, and I say story because I don't think it's a parable. Jesus uses names here. He gives details here. The story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man being this cruel, selfish, unbeliever. Lazarus being this very poor but faithful man. And Luke 16, 22, 23, it says this, The poor man died. And was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being tormented, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus by his side. Lazarus goes to Abraham's side. Abraham's bosom, the old translations would say. The rich man is tormented in Hades. The end of the book of Luke Jesus is hanging on the cross and the thief who hung next to him cried out in in repentance and faith. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus responds, this is an amazing statement. Could you imagine being on death's doorstep and hearing this from the mouth of Jesus? Truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. Those who die Trusting in Christ, they're gathered with their people. It's a place of rest. Jesus calls it paradise, but most importantly, we read it is with him. That's where Jesus is. There we wait. Without our glorified bodies yet, we don't know what that looks like. Paul says to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord, and we eagerly await the resurrection. But there we wait with Abraham with Moses, with, with David and Elijah, with, with Martin Luther and William Tyndale and Blaise Pascal and, 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 and those whom we, we've loved and lost in the Lord. Until the final resurrection, and the recreation of this world, the new heavens and the, and the new earth, that's the, the blessing that Abraham received, gathered in peace to his fathers. That's the blessing that awaits us immediately gathered into paradise, awaiting eternity and the new earth. Because God is faithful. Because God's promises are sure. And so we see God's faithfulness to Abraham just oozing out of this passage. But then we also see God's faithfulness through Abraham. At the end of Abraham's life, God's faithfulness, his blessing continues through Abraham to Isaac, to the next generation. 
Abraham trusted the Lord. And as God had commanded back in chapter 17, um, that he would send Ishmael away so that Isaac would be the sole inheritor of God's blessing. God was working out this salvation plan. Here, back in chapter 25, verses 5 and 6, say that, that Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward into the east country. This is a, a clear picture of the Lord's election. All of these children are Abraham's physical children, but only one is the promised son. Only one is the, the elect child that, that would inherit the, the blessing and the, the promises of God. Only one is chosen by God, given by God, blessed by God, preserved by God. So the children of Keturah are, are sent away. They're sent away to the east country. The children of Ishmael, it says they settled opposite of Egypt, probably down the, the Sinai Peninsula. Verse 5 in obedience to the Lord, says Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Verse 11 says, After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. So here, as we come to the end of Abraham's life, we see the, the faithfulness of the Lord through Abraham to Isaac. Isaac, of course, being that promised child the son born to Sarah in her old age, the one by whom God's rescue plan would be carried out. But at the same time, I think just on a human level, I'm sure it was no small thing in the eyes of Abraham to, to see his son trusting in the Lord, walking with the God that he had walked with. Genesis 26, 3-4, um, the Lord says this to, to Isaac, very similar, building off of what he had said to Abraham. He says to Isaac, sojourn in the land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and your offspring, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. And I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. As we look at the the death of Abraham, we see the reality of death around us. It ought to cause us to remember our own mortality, the, the frailty of our own lives. It ought to cause us to see with a little more clarity the things that are, that are actually important, the things that matter. And through, uh, in, in the end, um, it is absolutely God's sovereign election. God blessed Isaac. But God worked out that sovereign election through the obedience of Abraham. The same way, if, if our children are going to walk with the Lord and to grow up trusting Him and knowing Him, ultimately that will come down to the, the call of the Lord in their lives. It depends ultimately on God's saving work in, his, uh, in their hearts by His grace. But just as just as God's blessing came to Abraham through Abraham's faith and obedience, and God's blessing came through Abraham to Isaac through his faith and obedience, we should expect that if God's blessing 
is to come through us to our children, but it would come through our faith and obedience. Now, this could be applied to all of our relationships. If you're single or you don't have kids or your kids are all grown and gone, this absolutely applies to, to, to every relationship we have, our, our coworkers, our, our neighbors, um, our unbelieving family. Are you, are you walking in obedience and faith to the Lord, trusting in Him, so that the gospel, the blessing of God, can be shared through us. That, 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 that there's a, an avenue for, for sharing this great news. But I want to get a little bit pointed as this passage talks about a, a son to a father. I want to talk to the fathers this morning. Looking at Abraham, the father of Isaac, at the end of his life. Seeing the blessing of his faith passed on to the next generation. What a legacy. What, a, what an inheritance he has left. Sure, he had, he had camels and, and donkeys and, and land, and well, not much land, a little tiny plot, and wealth. But that's nothing in comparison to this. That means nothing in eternity. What legacy are you leaving behind? What are you doing today that is building that legacy so that you, hopefully, as an old man, can sit back and see the blessing of God come through you to your children? Are you walking with the Lord today in a way that, that your children see your faithfulness? Are you spending time in, in the Word of God personally? Not just going to church, but you as a father leading the way, prioritizing the gathering of the saints, being actually involved in the, in the life of the church. Do your day-to-day -day decisions and, and priorities put your faith in the Lord and your obedience to Him on display for your kids to see it? Are you walking with the Lord in a way that they can see your faithfulness? And then, are you intentionally making disciples? It's easy to see our job as fathers, as parents, in, in terms of behavior modification, Right? I just want them to be quiet when I need them to be quiet. I just want to have good, um, kind of dependable, functioning members of society. That would be a win. But as Christians, that's not enough. That, that can't be our end goal. Our heart, our, our goal in parenting must go beyond behavior modification. It must be focused on heart transformation. Taking the time to actually engage, that takes work. To try to get beneath behavior and understand the root of sin. Not just to say, because I said so, but to bring that conversation back to the, to the character of God and the law of God. To what it means to be a sinner before God. Not just to change their actions, but then to lead them to conviction and repentance pointing them to the, to the grace of God and Jesus Christ and, and, and the provision of a Savior. We should do that as we, as we discipline them. That should be part of our, our process of leading them to the Lord. We should be teaching them and training them God's Word outside of discipline as well. Right? Talk to your kids about the glory of God. Point them to His, his beauty in the sunrise. Let them, let them hear God's Word from your lips. Your family devotions together. I don't know why that's such a terrifying thing, but fathers, I'm with you. That can be hard. 
Just read a chapter of the Bible. Talk about it. Our, our lives are chaotic too. Um, our summers get to be a train wreck, but whether you've never done it before, or maybe it's just been a long time, fall is just a great season to, hey, start that up again or for the first time. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be complicated. You don't, you don't need to try to wow them with your biblical insights. Just, just open God's word and read a little bit. Talk about what it means. Engage a couple of questions. Pray together. Google the lyrics to a song that you know and sing it together. God uses those normal, ordinary, simple things. It's beautiful. Fathers, that's, that's what we're called to be. That's biblical fatherhood is bringing them up in the wisdom and instruction of the Lord. Mothers, support your husbands in this. Nudge them in this. They need your backup. They need your encouragement. Just a quick note. If, if what I just explained feels like that is a long way out, I don't even know how to start on that. Um, a resource that my wife and I found really helpful. Um, it's just an audio series. Uh, it's broken down into like, 20-minute sections, and so we used to listen to it on the drive to church together. All the better if the kids are listening, but it definitely needs to be both of you listening. Um, it's called Drive-By Parenting. Just Google it. You can do that right now. I won't be, even be offended. Um, it's like 20 bucks to download it onto your phone, and you can listen to that as you drive. Um, it's a great resource. Um, recommend it. Um, and we have other books in our, in our library, which is not set up this morning, but you can come back next week. And uh, there's some fantastic books there if you want to dive a little bit deeper. Um, but it's so important. Leaving behind a legacy of faith, of God's blessing through you to your, to your children as they come to trust in him. So, so we see God's blessing to Abraham. We see God's blessing coming through Abraham. Finally, we see God's blessing beyond Abraham. Beyond Abraham. Now, if you've been here any length of time, if you've been with us even just a few chapters in Genesis, you knew this was coming. Um, because every passage, every page, every verse in the book of Genesis is about the foundations of our faith. It's about God laying the groundwork of the gospel. It's building up to the coming of Christ. It's pointing forward to the coming of Christ. The central theme of this passage in its, kind of in its larger context is this, this covenant that God made with Abraham working its way out, passing on from Abraham to Isaac. The, the baton is being handed right here. It's God's faithfulness beyond Abraham and, and beyond Isaac. Each of these three Parts of the text, again, point to this. Verses 1 to 6, you see Abraham took this other wife, Keturah. None of those sons are the carrier of God's blessing. None of them are the, the promised child that, that would take up the covenant that God had made. Verse 5, Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. That's the, the culmination. That's the point of that section. Verses 7 to 11, God's blessing to Abraham. Abraham lived this full life, went to be with the Lord. And then verse 11 says, God blessed Isaac, his son. That's the point of that section. It all leads up to God's blessing then on Isaac. Verses 12 to 18, Ishmael is introduced right off the bat. Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. His disqualifying characteristics are given right off the bat. 
he's not the one. What about Ishmael? As we come to the end of, uh, of Abraham's life, what, what about Ishmael and his descendants? Nope, not them. And they settle, we're told in uh, verse 18, from Havilah to Shur, opposite of Egypt, again, probably down the, the Sinai Peninsula, but the point is it's not the promised land. They didn't settle in peace and prosperity. They settled over and against their neighbors. They settled in violence and conflict. They were not the recipients of God's covenant through Abraham. That privilege goes to Isaac, to Isaac alone. These other sons, these other descendants, they're, they're sent away um, precisely for the purpose of protecting Isaac, securing his place as Abraham's heir and, and the successor of God's plan. But that's not the end of the story, right? This is the beginning of the story. God's plan was always to bless Abraham and, and a particular line of his descendants so that through them the whole world would be blessed, right? It was never cutting them out. It was making a way for it to go broader. Prophet Isaiah picks up on this in a really neat way. Isaiah 60. It's all about God's plan to, to bless this dark and broken world, this world of sin, this world that is under the curse through the descendants of Abraham and Isaac. Verses 2 and 3, Isaiah says, For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and a thick darkness the peoples. Notice peoples, plural, there. That's speaking of the different peoples of the world, the, the ethnic groups of people, the various descendants. But the Lord will arise upon you, the you, there's the descendants of Abraham and Isaac, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Look at verses 6 and 7 then, this is where it gets interesting. A multitude of camels shall cover you, young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. And all the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar. I will beautify my beautiful house. It's amazing. He's taking Genesis 25 and he's, and he's drawing it forward into the future. He's showing us where this is going. Midian, Ephah, Sheba, those are, those are the sons of Keturah. They're picked up again in Isaiah. They're the sons and the grandsons that were sent away, sent off to the east. They're, they're coming back. Kedar, Nebaioth, those are the sons of Ishmael. Those who were descendants of the rejected son. And here in the prophecies of Isaiah, those who were sent off are returning. They were sent away that they might be a true home to return to. God is saying through Isaiah, when my plan to bless the world through Abraham's seed, when that comes to fruition, it will not just be a blessing to Isaac and to his descendants, but it will be God's blessing to all the peoples of the world. Some of you, I'm sure, already caught it. Verse 6, Midian, Ephah, Sheba. 
those were sent off to the east. And if you remember through the, the, the literary work of, of Genesis, east is always away from the presence of the Lord. Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden to the east. Cain is sent to wander in the east. The builders of the Tower of Babel traveled off to the east to build. Lot went to the east to dwell in Sodom. But here they come from the east, bringing with them gifts of gold and frankincense. It's a little chilly out this morning. It's not quite Christmas. Are you picking up on it? Does this not ring a bell? As Jesus, the, the seed of Abraham, the final descendant from this line, is born, wise men would come from the east. They would bow down before him and they would bring gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. It's a picture of the, the people's coming to Christ. The people of the, the other nations coming into God's blessing. The, the blessing that came through Abraham. It's the undoing of the sending out of these sons. It's the reversal of that. It's the reversal of the Tower of Babel where God scattered them. Now he's restoring them. By the way, that's actually also what's happening at Pentecost. As you see the languages unconfused and all of the nations gathered together, God is saying, this is it. This is the bringing in. This is the undoing of what the curse of sin has done. Back to the wise men coming from the east. Gold is a gift for kings. They're, they're accepting Jesus as their king. Frankincense was an incense that was used in the temple that was used for offering sacrifices. They're coming to Jesus as their ultimate priest, the one who can make them right before God. Myrrh, not mentioned in Isaiah 60, but it was a spice used for burial. Whether they knew it or not, they were foreshadowing his death that would bring sinners out of sin to be saved. In this way, Back to Isaiah 60, verse 7. It says, They shall come up with acceptance on my altar. Those who were cast out, those who were rejected, will now come and be accepted. And the Lord says, And I will beautify my beautiful house. I will beautify my beautiful house. The nations would not only come to Christ, but they would be accepted in him. And in that way, God would make his beautiful house even more beautiful. They'd be brought into the blessing of God. Paul writes about this. He picks up on this language from Genesis 25 and, and from Isaiah 60. Chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. It's, it's too long for the screen. Go ahead and turn there if you want to see it um, with your own eyes. Book of Ephesians. If I take the time to flip there, then you'll maybe have time to flip there. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, he's speaking to Gentiles, who were once far off, those who were not part of this chosen race, those who were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, 
and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you see it? You see just the connection after connection. This is it's mirroring, he's building it all together. God's work in Christ was to take the Jews, the physical descendants of Abraham, and the Gentiles, the outsiders, the people from all the other nations, and he makes us both one. He makes a new man, a new humanity, no longer Jew, no longer Gentile, something new in Christ. And in Christ, united together, we are made this new family, this new humanity, and in Christ, we are both together reconciled to God. The old covenant, then, with its laws and commands given through Moses, they're they're abolished in Paul's words. They're wiped out. They become obsolete because God has brought that to an end. Christ was the completion of all of it. And now in Christ, we who once were outsiders and foreigners become fellow citizens together, full members of the household of God. Paul refers to that household as a holy temple in which God dwells. God's beautiful house, once represented as a temple made of stone, no longer, now it is his church. It's his people as living stones being built together. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's God's word. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We are built up together. Revelation 5, 9, very familiar passage, picks up on this as well. Saying to Jesus, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on this earth. God's plan was always faithfulness beyond Abraham, reaching out to the the darkest corners of the world, reaching to the outsiders, the lost, the rebels, the rejected. It's us. It's us. I've done a survey lately, but I don't know that we have a lot of full-blooded Jews here. But guess what? Christ came and preached peace to them, same as he did peace to us. He came to rescue Jew and Gentile alike, insider and outsider alike. That's why Jesus came. That was his plan all along. That by his death on the cross, even those far off, lost in darkness and sin, with no rightful claim to him, who had no business to even ask God for his favor by his grace through faith in Jesus and his work on the cross could be forgiven of our sin. Be brought into this family. 
all by the grace of God, all to the glory of God. That's the faithfulness of God to Abraham, the faithfulness of God through Abraham, the faithfulness of God beyond Abraham as God beautifies his beautiful house, bringing redeemed sinners into this new humanity. It's the faithfulness of God that we stand in even now. The faithfulness that that gives us hope in the face of, of the brokenness and the pain of this life that gives us hope in the face of death itself. We're going to celebrate communion together. Um, Roman, why don't you come prepare to lead us in song again. As we celebrate communion, we come as those who once were far off, far from God, separated from 